This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before, but hospital-grade cleaning. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask, no Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doingourpart. Well, we're living through an historical event. So how about we talk to one of the world's greatest historians? It's Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Because four hours simply isn't enough. This is Armstrong and Getty Extra Large. Neil Ferguson is the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, for 12 years, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of History at Stanford, among uh, other credentials, and uh, more importantly, is a hell of a good conversation. It's been too long. Neil, how are you, sir? I'm very well indeed. I'm happy to report. Yeah, well, Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you, because Joe and I were throwing us around the other day. Um, uh, you know, you're a professional historian, so it's good to ask you. We're, we're amateur history buffs. Buffs, are we living through like a top 10 world event? I mean, because uh, by a number of measures, it seems to me it would rank pretty high in world history, maybe below the meteor that killed the dinosaurs, but certainly above Prince Harry moving to Canada, somewhere in that range. Yes, I, I certainly think it, it, it beats Prince Harry, though I'm not sure we're quite at the extinction event level. I think if it were just a pandemic, uh, it wouldn't really be top 10. Sure. Uh, because it's clearly not up there with the Black Death of the 14th century. I don't think it's uh, as a dangerous a disease, actually, as the influenza of 1918-19. But what's making it 
world historical is the extraordinary economic uh, consequences and particularly the ways in which government-mandated lockdowns are causing uh, the biggest economic shock since the Great Depression, much bigger than the the 2008-2009 financial crisis. So I think that's really the differentiating factor here. We're we're really in the midst of one of the biggest economic shocks in, in history. Well, and similar to the uh, still shocking lack of knowledge about the specifics of the virus, how it infects, how it spreads, how it kills, uh, we don't have the slightest idea, do we, what the aftershocks are likely to look like or, or how long they'll last? Well, that's right, because uh, we know more now than we did back in January when I first started writing about this warning that... Uh, the Wuhan uh, coronavirus was likely to become a, a global pandemic. But, but we, we still don't really know the critical things we need to know. Uh, we don't really know what the infection fatality rate is because these case fatality rates are very skewed. We don't really know how many people have been exposed. The testing is getting uh, up to the level where we can start to get a fix on it. We have no idea when a vaccine will be ready. It certainly won't be this year and can't even be relied on to be ready uh, for next year. So there are a whole bunch of imponderables here. But history can be, in some ways, as helpful, if not more helpful, than epidemiology. One thing's very clear from the great pandemics of the past. Uh, this will not be one wave and done. And I think we've been led as a public to believe that as long as we flatten the curve in the great phrase of the year, uh, we'll be fine. And we'll be looking back on this by July 4th, saying, gee, that was rough, but it's over. That's not the case. Uh, almost all the great pandemics had multiple waves. 1918-19, actually, the second wave was bigger than the first one. And I think it's it's only a matter of, of time. Uh, it could be soon when we try to get the economy back to work, uh, or it could be after the summer. But there will be a second wave, and I think it's time that people face that realistically rather than kidding themselves that it'll all be over by July 4th. Your opinion piece in the Boston Globe, The Economic Legacy of a Coronavirus Lockdown, the old battle between security, um, uh, you know, security and safety and your economic security and your health and all that sort of stuff, the way it's playing out here, it seems like it transferred the flatten the curve. As you said, it's the phrase of the year, flatten the curve. But originally, we we're going to flatten the curve to try to keep the hospitals from being overwhelmed. Now, all of a sudden, we've gone to, it seems, flatten the curve to make sure nobody dies from it. And I don't know if I'm willing to trade how many tens of thousands of deaths for something worse than the Great Depression. I think that this, this trade-off has, has sometimes been uh, oversimplified in, in the way that, that uh, some politicians have said we should be ready to sacrifice the elderly to get the economy back. I don't think we should think about it like that. I think that the, the truth is that we just have a lot of uncertainty about the disease, and therefore we, we need to err on the side of, of caution. We certainly needed to err on the side of caution right at the beginning when we knew nothing about it. Unfortunately, we didn't. Uh, but I think the projections that were so crucial in March in leading to lockdowns implied that up to two million or more Americans would die if we did nothing. And I think that was almost certainly wrong because it implied uh, or it was based on an assumption that the infection fatality rate was about 0.9 percent. In effect, the epidemiologists who confusingly included somebody with the same name as me, Neil Ferguson of Imperial College London, were saying this is as bad as 1918-19. And I'm pretty sure it's not. I think we now know enough to see that it is not as deadly 
Uh, it's more like actually the 1957-58 pandemic, which not many people remember. And the reason they don't remember it is that it killed quite a lot of people around the world, including uh, many Americans. It, it didn't lead to economic lockdown. It didn't lead to this kind of uh, man-made depression. So I think, um, although I'm going to be careful here, I think we're starting to see that we actually uh, went in for overkill in the face of a disease that was highly contagious, certainly, but not as dangerous as we at first thought. And that's why I think uh, it would be very, very uh, urgently desirable for the U.S. to switch to a more subtle form of, of containment of the disease of the sort that we've already seen in countries like Taiwan and South Korea, which haven't had to lock down their economies. We've used a very blunt instrument based, I think, on an exaggerated fear of the excess mortality there was going to be. Economic lockdowns, I don't think, have been especially effective compared with social distancing, which is something different. And I think uh, the lesson that we can learn from successful countries like Taiwan and South Korea is that with testing and contact tracing, you don't need to, to crater your economy to manage this disease. Well, and we're discussing the trade-off between the lives of the old, in your example, and versus the economy. I think it's brutally under-discussed, the fact that if the economy tanks or is, is left in rubble, there will be many, many deaths of poverty, despair, lack of medical care, uh, suicide, depression, addiction, et cetera, et cetera. And I could easily see uh, 200,000 deaths of despair being sacrificed to save 30,000 lives of Wuhan flu, which is obviously not the sort of bargain anyone would strike. Yeah, I think the risk uh, in terms of uh, potential mortality due to COVID-19 was, was higher than, than 30,000 if, we, if we'd really done Nothing. I think it yeah, I meant going forward, a really. A bit higher. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, we're in a situation now when it's quite hard to, to say what the result would have been if we'd, if we'd done nothing. But the distinction I want to draw is between uh, a rational policy of social distancing that tries to minimize the exposure, especially of vulnerable groups, uh, to this virus under very blunt instrument of economic lockdowns, which I think have almost certainly done more harm than the net public health benefit. I mean, in the end, we're using a lot of quite confusing metrics. And the result, I think, has been to lead ordinary Americans to, to feel very uncertain about what they should do. Uh, I think the best way of thinking about this is just excess deaths. Are we seeing right now uh, much higher mortality than we would expect at this time of year and, uh, and that's, I think, a good way of thinking about it. And the answer is that we're starting to, uh, although at the moment it's still very confined to states such as New York. In Europe, there's excess mortality, certainly in countries like Italy and Spain. And it's clear that it would have been much higher if, if they'd done nothing and if we'd done nothing. So I, I don't think we should underplay this. It was always a mistake to say, oh, this is just the the seasonal influenza. That was a terrible, uh, bit, bad bit of analysis that, that, that attracted a lot of commentators on both the left and the right back in, in January, February, in the first half of March. Uh, so I don't think we should underestimate this, but nor should we wildly exaggerate it. This is really not as dangerous a virus as the 1918-19 influenza. If, if you actually imagine that uh, virus coming back today, uh, then we'd be looking at uh, death death count potentially 
up to 2 million. But, but I really don't think that was the nightmare scenario we faced. I think it was much closer to being something like 1957-58 with maybe, maybe 500,000 people potentially uh, at risk. Uh, so it's a very fine balance that governments have to strike. I think the mistake that we may have made was to say, well, first we'll try insouciance, uh, why, why should we worry? And then let's try what the Chinese did in Hubei province, which was economic lockdown. And we failed to see that actually there was a much smarter policy being done in the other China, Taiwan, where testing and policing enabled them uh, to avoid the contagion spreading far. They had very few deaths and they haven't had to lock down their economy. I think it guys has to be, why did all those people in the federal government whose job this was uh, fail so badly? It's not like we didn't have a plan for a pandemic. We had, I think at the last count, six different plans. We had legislation, we had task forces, we had people inside the Department of Health and Human Services whose one job it was to deal with a pandemic. And for some inexplicable reason, all this bureaucracy completely failed. That's the conversation I think we need to have when this finally is over, which I don't think will be until next year. We need to ask why big government failed so epically in the United States this year. Yeah, I hope that's looked at um, uh, and by people being nonpartisan, just trying to get to the bottom of it. I've read about the first half of your uh, Henry Kissinger book, just absolutely fantastic. And the reason I bring that up is I was reading an opinion piece from Henry Kissinger just the other day in which he thinks this is really going to have an effect on the world order, particularly um, the, uh, the, the power struggle between us and China. How do you feel about that? I agree with that. I mean, Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations wrote a kind of uh, alternative piece saying, oh, it's not going to change that much except to accelerate existing trends. I think, I think that, that's definitely wrong. This is a huge shift uh, that is going to happen. I think in some ways uh, it is laying bare what I've already called Cold War II, revealing that there are fundamental uh, irreconcilable differences between the United States and China, or perhaps I should say the West and China, because Europe's in this too. I think prior to the pandemic, a lot of people wanted to pretend this wasn't happening and that somehow we could resurrect the old uh, relationship between the US and China that I used to call Chimerica. But Chimerica's dead and Cold War II is very much with us. Mm. And I think the pandemic has, has revealed that very clearly. Chinese, of course, are trying to bend the narrative and say, oh, uh, well, this may possibly have started uh, in China, but actually it might have started somewhere else. But, hey, anyway, we're here to save the world. And that, that I think, is a, a pretty uh, ill-conceived propaganda move on China's part that's probably going to backfire on them. It's certainly not playing well in Europe, as I understand it. So, no, I think this is a big uh, moment of truth for the U.S.-China relationship. Uh, it's a moment that has revealed all that is rotted at the core of the People's Republic of China's governance. Uh, but there's other stuff to be uh, looked at, too. I, I don't think it can be without consequences that the price of oil has essentially collapsed to zero or even, in some cases, into negative territory. For, for countries like Russia or, for that matter, Saudi Arabia, that rely primarily on these uh, revenues from oil, it's, it's got to be a, an existential threat that they, they face. So I think the political consequences, or maybe I should say the geopolitical consequences of the pandemic will be enormous. I'm much closer to Kissinger than Richard Haas on that. Uh, changing direction just a bit, those of us of a libertarian bent are, are 
concerned about a couple of aspects of this. Power, once grasped, is is not easily uh, taken back, and, and rights surrendered are not easily regained. And there seems to be an awful lot of... Uh, you know, too too easy acquiescence to we're putting you essentially under house arrest and we're not even going to indicate that we understand how serious that is. You have no right to peaceably assemble, but it's because there's an emergency. And again, it, it, it could be necessary. But the fact that the powers that be don't even say, look, we understand we're asking you to surrender your most precious rights. We're very sorry. We'll get back to normal as soon as we can. The casualness of it is bothersome to us. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think the United States has a bit of a problem, actually, with the way in which emergencies operate. Uh, They have a tendency to get declared and never undeclared. Mm, uh, And that's because uh, the the National Emergencies Act, uh, which dates back to uh, the 1970s, has essentially been abused by successive administrations. Again, this is not a partisan point. Uh, so the emergencies get declared and then they kind of stay in force. Uh, and I think it would be very, very dangerous indeed if some of the emergency measures that have been introduced uh, since the pandemic came along became a permanent feature. I think it's urgently needed that the, that the uh, National Emergencies Act be reformed so that there is an expiry, mandatory expiry of states of emergency, uh, because otherwise we end up in a situation which I think is very troubling. Uh, that that a whole range of different statutory provisions supposed to be for emergencies only become permanent features uh, of uh, of American uh, life. And I I don't think any president should be in a position to declare a permanent state of emergency. Frankly, that's how republics die. It doesn't really matter who the president is. Uh, My final question is, how long do you think there will be reverberations uh, economically worldwide out of this? Well, I don't think that the the public health crisis is going to be over for quite a while because uh, the virus is not going away. We don't have therapies. We don't have a vaccine. Uh, We're nowhere near to herd immunity. A great proportion of the population hasn't even been exposed to it yet. We're still going to be playing some game of whack-a-mole with uh, COVID-19 into next year and actually beyond. It could become a regular feature of life, in fact, if it turns out that you don't get long-lasting immunity once you've had it, which I think is quite possible. So that's the, that's the public health problem. It's certainly not going away in a hurry. But the economic consequences of what we've done really trouble me more because we have inflicted an enormous uh, shock to our economy. Uh, that's there in the data that you and I uh, can see every day, soaring unemployment, Businesses teetering on the brink of insolvency, relying on checks from the federal government to stay afloat. This can't continue for much longer with really sustained uh, uh, economic damage that will not be easy to recover from. I certainly don't see a V-shaped recovery under these circumstances. Uh, Imagining that this is financial crisis 2.0 and that you just need to throw money at it uh, in the form of a large federal deficit and lots of quantitative easing is delusional. All those measures are doing is propping up economy that would otherwise be flat on its face. Uh, But I think it's going to be a long road back, uh, even if uh, we successfully uh, begin to uh, unwind the lockdowns in the next uh, couple of months. Uh, So I'm afraid uh, we we aren't going to be out of this for a long time. Remember how long it took, actually, for the U.S. economy to get back to where it was in terms just of employment. 
after 2008, it was something more like six years before we were really back to where we had been. This is worse. Uh, and so I think we need to prepare ourselves for a slow crawl back to something that I don't think we can call the new normal because I don't think it's going to be that normal. It's not going to be that normal if we can't go to the ball game, if we can't go to crowded restaurants, if we can't go to the movies. If all of those things that involve social proximity are essentially off uh, for the indefinite future until there's a generally available vaccine, and talking about normal is probably just another form of self-delusion. Wow. Well, and, and the universe has a funny way of throwing things at you as you're recovering from the last shock, too. Neil Ferguson sure. of the Hoover Institution, Stanford University, we don't want to be too greedy with your time, but we thank you very much for the conversation. Always enjoy it. It's been a pleasure. Sorry I'm not more cheerful. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks nonetheless. Yeah, well, I understand why he said there at the end. I was thinking while he, uh, while he was laying that out, I thought, I hope he's wrong. I hope he's wrong about that. I well, hope it is not 10 years before we get back to even where we were before. Well, you know, my, my comment about the universe throwing things at you, it works both ways, too. Sure. Sometimes the universe throws enormous opportunities your way, and, and things turn out much better than Although, anticipated. you know, tearing down and chaos is the natural state of things. That's what you're always fighting against just in life. Entropy, um, right. Yeah. Yep. That's what they, they say. And, uh... And uh, so, we'll, you know, like you say, there will be other things come along over the next six, eight, ten years as the world tries to get back to where it was three months ago. Um, there will be wars and earthquakes and hurricanes and uh, political unrest and who knows what. So, You know, the optimist in me thinks that a lot of crap that is addling our society, that's hurting us, is going to be shaken out because we don't have time for it anymore. We're going to be a, a leaner, meaner, more practical people. Then there's the other part of me that thinks, no, it appears to me bureaucracies are growing. Uh, the the power of the government and the bureaucracies is growing, and things might just end up worse. I don't know. We we'll got a, we've got a whole generation that has spent a good chunk of their life being taken care of by the government because there was no other way to do it, and now they... Are That's in, on the increase. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> Extra large. When you're ready to ride Metro, we want you to know we're ready for you. Here are just a few of the people at Metro to tell you how we're doing our part to keep riders safe. We're cleaning like never before. We're hospital grade clean. You'll find hand sanitizer stations all over the Metro. No mask. No Metro. Need one? We have a few extras. At Metro, we're doing our part to keep the D.C. area moving. Find out more at wmata.com slash doing our part. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity, designed for women's unique retirement needs, with flexible withdrawals plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. Gainbridge is helping build a better financial future for women. Retirement income you can't outlive is the ultimate flex. Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information.